This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome, 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 welcome everyone to the first ever episode 16 of the Best Seats Podcast. I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy. Thank you, as always, to Ali Coyle for providing the music for the show. Thank you to you for showing up and listening to it. If you want to listen to it when you're not here, be sure to check her out at AllieCoyleMusic.com or at any of her family's three restaurants here in the Orange County area. But let's jump right into it. Depending on when you're listening to this episode, um, the nation is still at grips with the protest following, or I should say triggered by the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, and basically going to war with itself now as we hope to dismantle the systematic racism that's been set up in this country. If you disagree with that, sorry, but just look around. There's no kind of way to disagree with that. Um, Getting on the show today is a really, really special guest, somebody that I have been looking forward to getting on for a bit. Again, this was not the way that I wanted to have this person on, um, but he provides more context to the situation that's around us, uh, again, depending on when you're hearing this episode, than I could ever hope to give. So my guest today, Chef Anthony Dismuke, chef up at Benchmark Restaurant in Santa Ana, has cut his teeth behind some really, really great restaurant programs, though, including Zach Gearson's Journeyman, up in Fullerton, which is sadly no longer with us. One of the best and most important restaurants, I think, to have ever been in Orange County. He's a really talented guy, but more importantly than that, he's just a really great human being. And we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today regarding his background and experience as an African-American male growing up, uh, some of his experiences being racially profiled by police officers, experiences of his family, what it's been like to see everything that's been going on, um, and then what it's been like being back in restaurants, what food media has been like, what it needs to be like, et cetera. So it's a huge episode. Um, I am so grateful for him for taking the time. Again, being, being a chef and having to jump back into the restaurant world doesn't mean you have a lot of free time, period. When you're trying to protest and support your community and everything else on the side, you have even less time. So the fact that he was able to carve out um, about an hour and a half total for this episode really, really means the world I'm so grateful. I'm such a fan of what he does. Uh, if you're looking for a dinner spot, please head up to Santa Ana and go to Benchmark. You will not be disappointed. You have my word. If you are disappointed, that's on you because I gave you my word and you should not be disappointed. It's really good. You don't trust me. Trust uh, Gretchen Kurz at Orange Coast. She wrote about it and she knows what she's talking about probably better than any other food writer in Orange County. And that is an absolute promise. He's a great guy. This is a great episode. Again, it's a little bit of uncomfortable stuff. But these conversations need to happen, and I am so thankful for him for taking the time to have this conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode with my guest, Chef Anthony Dismuke. Right, yeah, let's man. let's definitely jump right into it. Anthony, um, we got a ton to talk about today, so I want to get moving as quick as we can. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself oh, and kind of where, where you're at right now? Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, my name is Anthony. Um, I'm currently a uh, sous chef, um, one with uh, another uh, fellow named Morgan at Benchmark in Santa Ana. 
Um, it's been a great experience so far there. You know, um, you probably know me before from my work that I've done at Journeyman's. Um, I've only been at Benchmark for a little bit now. Um, but as far as Journeyman's, you know, um, we've had a lot of huge accolades there. You know, I think I've seen you around a couple of times, you know, at our media dinner and whatnot. Uh, over there. So, um, yeah, I started at Benchmark um, about two months ago. Um, and with COVID and everything starting, um, once I started there, I was only able to work uh, about two days <laughs> before this all happened. So um, I didn't really, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't even really get to go through my training or anything like that until I just came back um, about three weeks ago uh, to be able to, you know, do some work for the people coming in for to-go orders and everything like that, yeah. So you really have, oh my gosh, so two shifts right before COVID basically. So you basically just kind of been on hold ever since you started it. That's rough. Did you have any indication kind of when you first got the job at Benchmark that I guess things were going to shut down kind of as quickly as they did? Well, no. Um, you know, it was, everything was kind of bubbling up. You know, um, the talk about COVID has been, Starting around December, you know, of last year, uh, everything was bubbling up, but it wasn't as serious. Uh, I think a lot of people, including myself, at first, weren't taking it as serious as it was. Uh, you know, we were like, oh, you know, it's just going to be a couple weeks off. This is cool. We get a little vacation. <laughs> um, um, as I was there starting and training, it started to bubble up more and more. And then I heard of other restaurants closing down, um, people losing their jobs. And then I had came to work and, you know, they had to announce that, a few days later that we, you know, that we were going to be taking a few weeks off. Um, a few weeks turned into about a few months. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I've only kind of trickled myself in there as far as um, working uh, side, side by side with Morgan and uh, Chef Colleen and um, Chef Robert with um, doing some to-go orders, um, very small menu, sending that kind of stuff out. Um and, you know, it's just, it's been an interesting experience as far as that goes. Um, just not, I think, with everyone else, just not knowing exactly what's going on and when we we're going to be coming back and when we're going to be, um, you know, full-time, um, full menu. So it's, it's been very interesting. It's been a whirlwind, if you will. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm always there to ride with the uh, interesting times. <laughs> I, I seem to thrive uh, during those times myself. <laughs> So we're, we're recording this on Tuesday the 9th, depending on when people listen to this episode. Um, hopefully they will listen to it soon. But yeah, we're recording this on Tuesday. Any indication so far? You guys are open for dine-in service, right? Yes, we are open uh, for dine-in dine service as of last week. Um, and the turnout has been incredible. Um, it, it was already a popular restaurant. I had heard before I came in. Um, and I was reached out uh by Chef Colleen from my work and um, what I put in at Journeyman. Um, so I gained a little steam from there. And yeah, she brought me in and, you know, uh, seeing how busy it was, was incredible for that one weekend I worked. <laughs> and coming, yeah, and then coming back um, after COVID, um, it's been just an instant resurgence of uh, popularity. Uh, it was on Tuesday at 11 o'clock right when we opened 11 a.m uh we saw 27 people all sit down at once uh big parties for wow. for graduations and whatnot yeah so it was it was very surprising so it's, it's very weird to see everyone just out now <laughs> you know um, <laughs> as far as everyone being scared at one point and now everyone just blew them outside uh yeah so 
it's yeah. been incredible. Before we dive into obviously kind of the bigger issues and topics, that I, mm-hmm. I, I do want to kind of at least give benchmark its dues for those that have not been, um, or I think it's, I'm going to get this wrong. Yeah, no, I am not. Uh, Orange Coast Magazine, Gretchen Kurz, who yeah. in my opinion is one of the best food writers, mm-hmm. I think that we have in South County. Uh, oh, she, could, she could hold her own with anybody. She gave you guys a glowing review. If you've not been to Benchmark, definitely check it out because it's, it's I think it's an absolute gem you guys have up there in Santa Ana. I love what you oh, do yeah. up there. Yeah, it's great. Um, and the and the accolades that we have gotten since I've been there and the uh, the amount of love from the community is um, incredible. It's, it's intense. And uh, being uh, with Journeyman's and being uh, Best New Restaurant and then coming here and being at another restaurant that was... Uh, you know, one of the best new restaurants. It's, it's, it's incredible. And the food definitely stands out for that. That definitely has to feel good. And we're going to come back around to Journeyman's and Benchmark as a whole and kind of your cooking career a little bit later on. But I want to dive kind okay. of right into obviously the big topics. So you do mm-hmm. two, two shifts in, COVID shuts you down. You come back from that. And now mm-hmm. we are just over two weeks, obviously just about two weeks from the murder of George Floyd which kind of acted yeah. as basically the spark that lit off the nuke that has been everything that's been going on nationwide. Oh yeah. What's it been like for you having to, you know, as well, let's just start with the basics. What has this whole experience been like for you? Well, the, the whole experience has, it's been incredible. You know, um, it's, it's been very hurtful, uh, to see this, uh, happening over and over again. Um, you know, it's been, centuries now that we've had to deal with stuff like this you know um and it's unfortunate that it took you know something like covid and a lot of people being off and you know sports games and stuff like that being off for us to focus on a matter like this but you know at the end of the day it's uh it's a it's a good thing that that has uh brought this to light more and more and uh, that more and more people are coming out to this um i feel very tired um, emotionally and physically, but also very empowered that so many people are coming together and, you know, marching with us. And we've had, this is a protest that has been, that has been uh, one of the biggest in history. Uh, we've had one of the biggest numbers of turnouts and that's due to so many people coming out multicultural to support African-Americans and, um, and Black Lives Matter. As uh, someone who's obviously a black American, what's not, not just the response here in the States, but what's been like to see, what was it, 13 different countries complete, and not just do protests, but I mean like the the footage from Dublin and Amsterdam, I mean, the waves of people and the waves of support, what's that been like to see for you? Uh, You know, a loss for words, to tell you the truth, it's, uh, it's very, very empowering. Um, especially as an African American male, to to see that you know you you kind of feel like you don't have that much support as an African American, and especially as an African American male, um, we just kind of felt like we're on our own, you know, especially not having as deep rooted history because our history has been torn up and thrown all around, as you know, uh, Germans and you know and the Japanese, the Koreans, and all of that, and just feeling alone and not knowing too much, and to have all these other races come together and all these other and all these other creeds come together and just support you—it's it's extremely overwhelming. It's empowering. Uh, it makes you feel strong. You know, um, I've been—I myself have been taking to the streets and protesting 
because I felt like it's about time. My mother had to go through this. My grandmother had to go through this. My sister, my cousins, my aunt, everyone had to go through this. It's, it's unfortunate that in 2020, now I'm having to do this, but you know, we're going to keep fighting and we're going to keep doing what we need to do to, you know, spread this word and have it out. So one of the things that I do want to ask is, have you ever had personal experiences uh, or I guess yourself or other family members with uh, police? Yes, um, I've actually had many instances. Um, so as my sister as well, uh, my mother, <laughs> my uh, cousins and my grandma. But um, I'll tell you a story um, about myself first and then um, I'll follow up with a story about my sister. Um, so about, um, it was about six or seven years ago. Um, this is when I was doing uh, fiber optics. I was coming back uh, from work. I lived in Huntington Beach uh, on Brookhurst at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm heading home from work uh, in full. Um, I worked in the office at this time. So, um, you know, full suit and everything like that is around seven o'clock PM. I'm just heading home from, uh, heading home from work, long day, tired, <laughs> completely, um, just completely just done, ready to, you know, hang out and chill for the day. So um, I'm on, um, I, I think it was, uh, I think it was PCH, um, and I was making a ride onto Brookhurst, and I get pulled over. Um, I have no taillights out or anything like that. Um, just get pulled over, so, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I have nothing wrong. I have nothing to worry about. Um, cop comes up. He knocks on my window. Um, he, um, he says, hey, how you doing? Um, I'm like, you know, good. He's like, so what are you doing out right now? I was like, well, I'm just heading home from work. You know, mind you, I have a, a full suit on, a tie, and everything like that. Yeah. Um, and, he, and then he uh, he goes ahead and he uh, puts his head in the car. And he's like, hmm. He's like, it, sm it smells like something in here. He's like, are you on anything? And I'm like, no, I'm just coming home from work. I'm completely sober. Um, you know, I'm just uh, just trying to get home for the day. Um, he, he asked me, uh, he goes back to his car for a little bit with his partner. He talks to him. He comes back and he asked me to get out of the car. He says, you know, it smells like it smells like there has to be marijuana, or you're drunk, or something. Um, just that, just that term right there. He obviously didn't know what was going on. It smells like marijuana, or I'm drunk. Uh, yeah. so either one. And the fact that I was tired, um, I wasn't tired to the point where it looked like I was uh, wasted or anything like that. It's just exhausted after a long day. You know, um, wasn't driving under the speed limit, over the speed limit, or anything weird like that. Uh, so he goes ahead. He asked me to get out of the car. Um, we do a field sobriety test and uh, he checks my eyes and everything like that. And he goes, hmm. he's like, well, he's like, there's gotta be something wrong with you. There's gotta be something wrong with you. Mind Jesus. you, um, you know, I'm not arguing or anything like that. I'm not fighting back. I'm just you know, going along with the process, especially because, you know, I'm in my head, you know, I'm just like, I have nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. Um, he goes ahead, pulls me out of the car. We do a field sobriety test and he goes, well, we, you know what? We need to take you back to the station. Um, to check you further because there's got to be something wrong with you. At this point, I'm getting frustrated, but I'm still not talking back, still not arguing or anything like that, you know, and I'm like, you know, whatever, this should just be a second. Um, I should have uh, known my rights better, and that's why I suggest that every African-American uh, or any minority really knows their rights, you know, to um, be able to, you know, say the proper things to fight back, but I was just quiet at this point. So I get brought back to the station in handcuffs, Mind you, um, getting arrested in front of everyone that's driving down PCH. Everyone's watching this. Um, people are stopping, looking. It's uh, pretty embarrassing. So I get pulled in um, to the station. 
They keep checking me. They bring me into this room that looks like uh, sort of a medical room. Mind you, I've never been to jail at, in, until this point. Um, they bring me into a room that looks some, like some sort of medical room. And for about two hours, no lie, they turn off this room's empty. They bring me in. They turn off the light. They turn it back on. And then they stare at my pupils. They turn off the light. They turn it back on. They stare at my pupils. They turn off the light. They turn it back on. They keep staring at me. Jesus. Um, they make me stand there. They make me do the uh, hand, the finger to my nose. All these tests, even tests that I've never even heard about before. Um, I walk back and forth, um, uh, um, toe tip to uh, heel. About a feel, it felt like a mile. <laughs> I was in there forever. Um, he just kept saying, "There's got to be something wrong with you. There's got to be something wrong with you." You know, at this point, I'm like, "Man, I'm completely sober. I was just coming home from work. I'm not doing anything. I have nothing in my car. No one even rides in my car." They checked my car, obviously, and there was nothing in there. So they were just trying to find a reason. Um, I was in the jail cell for six hours. I had gotten off of work at six. I was in there until about midnight, until I was finally let go. Um, at the end of this, um, he, you know, after they practically wear me down by doing all these tests and going back and forth, they go, you know, well, the fastest way that you can get out of here is by taking a blood test. And then, you know, um, me not being completely, um, good with my rights and also knowing that I didn't do anything wrong, you know, I was just like, oh, whatever, you know, just take it. You know, I'm frustrated at this point. I want to go home. Um, so they bring me over to the nurse. Um, and then the cop that pulls me over walks by and I'm telling the nurse, I was like, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. Like what's going on here? This is, this is crazy. This is confusing. The cop walks by the nurse while I'm saying this and he goes, well, you shouldn't have been drinking and driving. You shouldn't have been smoking and driving. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? I'm like, and then I get mad. I don't yell or anything. I get mad, but you know, I'm just like, I did not do anything wrong. I'm completely sober. And if you were to see this nurse's eyes, you can tell that she knew that something was going wrong, that something was wrong. And she knew that it wasn't right. Yeah. And she's just telling me, calm down. It's okay. It's okay. Like you're, you're all right. Just, just to look in her eyes. She just looked incredibly sad because she knew it was a terrible situation that, you know, that I got stuck into. And she's like, it's okay. It's okay. So I was just calm to her and she was like really nice to me. She was talking about, you know, everything to me. And I just knew it was a BS bullshit situation. So, um, Finally, they take my blood. Now my blood is in the system. Um, and I've never had a reason for my blood to be in the system. But now, you know, I'm in the database uh, because of all of this. So I get um, I get let go finally at night. My friend comes and picks me up. Uh, luckily, they did tow my car. They had no reason to tow my car. <laughs> but they said they would leave my car there because I was being good. <laughs> so, so. Uh, I go back to my car, I go home and, um, you know, I talk to my friend who has a father that's a lawyer and we put together this whole case because it was completely crap and he was going to fight for me. So, um, I have to, I had to show up at court. Um, I show up at court, the cops did not show up at all. So I was advised that they did not show up, but you have a year of court cases to show up to until they, until they show either show up or the case drops. So for a year, um, about once or twice a month, I had to show up to court every single month and stand there and wait for hours. And the cops never showed up to any of the court cases. And then finally, a year later, it was dropped. Wow. Was this, yeah. what, what department was it? Was this Huntington Beach PD? Uh, it was actually Costa Mesa. Costa Mesa. Okay. Yeah, Costa Mesa PD. Wow. And yeah, so, um, you know, that was my... That wasn't my first instance. Um, you know, I've been, I've left uh, 
gyms after um, after NJB with my friends and been sat on the curb. Um, I've been sat on the curb just walking, uh, just a ton of different reasons. Um, and, and that was the first one I was brought to jail for absolutely no reason. So, um, and then we'll fast forward to my sister. My sister, who, um, you know, we spoke about before, she, um, she's, I love you, sis, but yeah, she's one of the nerdiest people <laughs> ever. She's super smart, super, super nice, super sweet, very spiritual, you know, and just has always worked her ass off in school. Has had no issues, and she's like, she's incredibly frail and small, you know, she's, she's not going to go around fighting anyone. Yeah. Anyway, she was going to the, uh, she was going to the court. Um, sorry, she was going to the airport um, to pick up one of my nephews and um, with her husband, who they were waiting um, in the baggage claim area. There was an issue where about a cop, a cop came up, asked them to move. And she said, OK, you know, where, where should I move to? Um, another another lady cop came up and was saying, hey, don't give him attitude. And she's like, I'm not. I was just asking him where to move. And then they asked her to get out of the car. Her husband was like. And my brother-in-law was like, no, you know, we know our rights. We're not doing anything wrong. They then uh, pulled my sister out of the car. Well, they pulled my um, brother-in-law out of the car and they throw him against the car. You know, he's he's huge. He's about 6'5", like three something. <laughs> they throw him against the car. I instantly saw him as a threat. My sister's about uh, five five seven, like 120 or <laughs> 30. You know, um, she's like, she's like, Hey, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? They throw, they pull her out of the car. They throw her on the ground. Um, she now has been thrown on the ground. She has a black eye. She has scratches across her face. Um, now my brother-in-law is starting to get angry at this point, which he wasn't at all. Very, very, you know, very calm person. He's like, Hey, take her off the ground. She's done nothing wrong. If you're going to take anyone, take me. So they throw her on the ground. They throw her against the car. They end up cuffing them. Um, they, they take pictures of both of them and there's articles that come out the next day that are from like, you know, um, side writers and stuff like that saying that, um, two, um, two livid African Americans, uh, get pulled over at the new, uh, New York police, uh, NYPD, or sorry, the, um, airport police in New York. And they were, and they were fighting with the cops and they swung at him, which wasn't Jesus. a situation that happened at all. Now, um, my sister is going for her doctorate um, at this point. Um, you know, she's graduated with masters and all of that. And still trying to fight these um, little side um, articles that are out on the news that keep circulating. So if you look up her name, then you're able, um, if you dig a little bit, you can find these articles out there. And that's just completely unfair to them. And they're still, to this day, this was about two or three years ago, fighting this. And as well, the cops have not shown up or tried to uh, fight it. Um, or try to, you know, be there and um, explain their side of it. So they're trying to sue the station back, but it's been this whole process. And um, on top of that, their lawyer is um, iffy on fighting it, and he's being weird about fighting it. My sister is completely freaking out. She wants to get a new lawyer. She's wondering why they're kind of, you know, not fighting it. They're saying that it's um, almost impossible to fight the NYPD or the um, or the airport police. That's unbelievable, man. That's yeah. absolutely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so the, no, yeah, please sorry. go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going, please. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, so these situations, um, you know, they happen to everyone now. Um, you know, unfortunately, as far as African-Americans and minorities, the, it's about 4% higher, and you have a, you know, a way higher percentage than that to get pulled out and uh, beat. 
And especially, um, you know, if people saw my sister, <laughs> you would be absolutely amazed by the situation. And the mugshot they took of her was after they threw her on the ground and she just looked destroyed and beat up and just, uh, you know, just emotionally drained. And now, you know, you see these mugshots, you would think of someone in a completely different light than what they are. And that's just unfortunate how this is happening. And no, no one knows me personally. Um, some people that might be listening to this do. Um, and same with my sister. But if you do us, then you would know that that's complete crap. But that's what's being put out there. These are the things that's happening. And then that's shaping people's view on um, African-Americans and police. I want to say that it's unbelievable, but th- that's just because that's my obviously experience with it. The fact is, is that it's very believable and that's the travesty of it all. So thank you for sharing, man. Of course. And, you know, just, um, these, these situations really just need to stop. You know, we shouldn't have to be scared to go out and drive in our car. Um, you know, uh, other people are already afraid to get in their car and drive when they see a cop, but we're on a, you know, four times. And I said 4% earlier, I meant four times. Um, uh, likely to get arrested and beat, but um, you know we we shouldn't have to drive around and be afraid to get in our car and then look around and see a cop and then say oh no 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 if they're in the other lane and then even if you just have a you know a slight a slight issue with your blinker you know worrying about if you're going to die I was um, I was pulled over for a blinker situation not too long ago in Newport as well uh, on my way back when I worked at Nobu. Um, and I had my hands on the wheel the whole time on the steering wheel and the cop comes up and this guy was actually nice, you know, (laughs) but this is just an example of our fear. Um, I had my hands on the wheel and he was just like, okay. Um, he's like, you want to pull up your, um, you want to pull out your, your license and registration. And I was like, okay. And he said, Oh, he's like, I'm going to run back and then I'll be back. I'm going to run back to the car and come back. So I had my hand on the wheel the whole time. He comes back. He's like, Oh, did you grab that? And I said, no, and I was like, I was just waiting for you to get back so I could put my, take my hands off the wheel. And he just laughed and he was like, he chuckled a little bit, you know, and he's like, oh man, he's like, we're not going to do that. He's like, we don't do that. He's like, I don't know why you're so afraid. Oh, <laughs> he's Jesus. just completely disconnected. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. So, mm-hmm. oh, thank you for sharing those it's stories. It's real. Man. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you're like me, during a quarantine, you probably got pretty familiar with your food service delivery drivers. But third-party companies can put a big financial strain on restaurants that are already taking a hit under a pandemic. That's why I was excited to learn about what Chef Debbie Lee is doing with her pop-up, Soul Town Supper. When you put in any type of order at $50 or more over at mindbodyfork.com, you can get free delivery of any of her amazing Korean pub grub. It's fantastic food that'll keep your heart happy while sitting at home. Using the discount code BESTSEATS10, that's B-E-S-T, C-E-A-T-S, and the number 10, you can get 10% off your first order. Orders have to be submitted by Wednesdays at 5 p.m., and the delivery will be at your doorstep when you wake up Friday morning. As Chef Deb will pack everything with insulated bags, reheating instructions, and more, and drop it on your doorstep between midnight and 6 a.m. So you can start your weekend right with delicious Korean pub fare. I've had it. I love it. I support it. You can go to mindbodyfork.com to learn more information and place an order for yourself. Again, using the discount code BESTSEATS10. Enjoy. You mentioned that you've been hitting the streets. Which protests have you gone to and kind of what's the experience been like at them? Um, I've 
the first one I went to was at La Palma Park in Anaheim. Um, after that, I had hit Garden Grove, Westminster, and also Costa Mesa. Um, the experience that I've had at these, uh, Anaheim was just amazing. Um, I definitely teared up walking down the street, walking down Harbor with a huge group of people. I think um, at the first one, there was around uh, one to 3,000, two to 3,000, something like that, mm -hmm. amount of people that we were walking with. And to walk down the street and feel that everyone is with you when you have grown up and felt like not really many people are with you other than your family and not seeing many other African-Americans at all around you. Uh, it, it, it was crazy. <laughs> it, it's crazy, you know. Um, the Anaheim protest was one of the, it was beautiful, you know, as far as, as far as the um, peacefulness, it was extremely peaceful. Yeah. It was 100% peaceful. Other than, you know, there was a couple other oddballs that came out there and did some drag racing and things like that. But um, I want to let people know that a lot of these people that are disrupting these protests are mostly anti-protesters that are just coming to start a ruckus so that it, so that it's blamed on the African-Americans and the Black Lives Movement, which, um, which we when we go out, we say that we want, we need to protest peacefully. We need to show that we want this to be peaceful. As far as the anger that does come from some of the African Americans, you know, um, it, in my opinion, is is due. Um, you know, after mm -hmm. after you, for example, of like what Tupac said, <laughs> um, you know, if you're sitting if you're sitting outside and watching people eat. A four course meal, beautiful four course meal made by the top chefs, and you're just sitting out the window, and they're just eating right in front of you, and you're just staring. After a while, you know you're gonna keep knocking, you're gonna keep knocking, you're gonna be like, "Can I come in? Can I come in? Can I eat? Can I try something?" But then they keep shoving it in your face, and so the knocking turns to banging. You keep banging. You're like, "I want to come in. I want to come in." And then the banging turns to breaking down the window and going in there and eating and doing what you do. Your uh, part is especially for. Um, being the ones that built that mill and cooked that mill. Yeah. Um, at the time that we're recording this, there seems to be some kind of parts of the country that are starting to enact things. Um, obviously, kind of the first one that a lot of people are doing is banning the use of the kind of the chokehold and, and the knee on the back of the neck. A lot of departments and are starting to have yeah. that removed. Um, Minneapolis yeah. has said that they're going to dismantle their police department. Um, I haven't yeah. I haven't looked into further details of what that means if they're building it back up, et cetera. HBO's John Oliver did a massive segment on his show this past Sunday talking about kind of some yeah. of those systematic issues. Which if anybody hasn't great. watched that, it is for free. You don't have to have HBO to watch it, and I recommend that one for sure. Uh, but the amount of detail that's out there, what's it been like seeing? progress and again whether that progress is good or bad at the moment but at least progress mm -hmm. being made to know that the voices are being heard in some capacity yes uh well it's un it's unfortunate that this all had to happen for even this uh, small amount of progress to mm -hmm. come about but for the fact that it is coming about that is that's great that's amazing um you know to to have finally people recognizing the situation and how disgusting the situation is, you know, that's a great thing. And dismantling and defunding the police isn't meant to be something where, you know, we're saying like dismantle it, destroy it, have everyone lose their jobs. And, you know, officers, even if there are, you know, even the good officers lose their jobs as well. It's about dismantling and reforming it. It's about taking the millions and millions of dollars that are poured into the police fund 
mind you, during uh, COVID as well, when everyone's supposed to be at home, why are why is there so much money being poured into that? You know, um, it's about taking that money and reinvesting it into Black communities. It's about reinvesting it into into you know different different uh, structures that will help these youth that are that are in lower income communities have access to tools that will help them that will help them build and not just you know see what they see around them which are liquor stores and and pawn shops and things like that one of the interesting things has been kind of watching the media and and I mean that in kind of a gross term watching the entire you know expanse of the media whether it's the major networks um, you know individual sites you know kind of independent reporters on the street what's it been like watching a movement that's so important and so necessary and obviously something so moving like you said tearing up when you were walking uh, mm. watching the different narratives kind of get pulled in different directions and I would say some of the best reporting and some of the best commentary coming from those people that are on the streets what would you say to kind of people that are home as far as what to listen to and what messages to listen to well um you know i would i would just number one say that you know um the messages that you should listen to are what we're trying to say what african-americans are trying to say you know it's it's not that it's not that you know especially with the black lives matter thing you know we're not saying that all other lives don't matter. We're just letting people know that our lives matter too. And I think that's a lost, um, I think that's a lost uh, proverb, if you will, between people, you know, um, it's a scary thing to hear black lives matter. You know, and then everyone's like, what about our lives? What about our lives? You know, it's, it's not about that. No one else lives matter. It's that our lives are matter. Our, our lives, excuse me, matter too. And our lives are included in this. You know, um, yeah, it's a, a good example is someone someone laying down and they uh, they broke their knee. They're laying on the ground. They're going, oh, my knee, my knee, my knee's broken. There's something wrong with my knee, you know, laying on the ground in pain. And then someone walks up and then goes, what about my knee? What yeah. about my knee? My knee matters, too. <laughs> you know, that that's probably one of the most perfect examples that I could give. Uh, Michael Shea also um a great um a great example too you know your wife comes home and then says uh baby do you love me do you love me and then you go baby i love everyone <laughs> that <laughs> that's not necessarily going to work out as well right <laughs> no probably not i did hear that I, I heard that one from michael shea too and i was like yeah that's that's pretty dead on yeah that, that works pretty and, well um yeah and the black lives matter movement is not about firing and prosecuting a few racist cops you know mm-hmm it, it is about dismantling a legal system that was deliberately built to oppress communities of color. This, this, uh, the police force was formed, very first formed to catch runaway slaves. There's uh, multiple books out there that refer to the fact that, you know, this, this all was meant to oppress African Americans. It was built to oppress African Americans. It's something that I think people forget. Um, and I don't, I, I'm, I, when it first started, I, I think there were a lot of people kind of asking, all right, well, help me educate, help me learn. And obviously that's something that people just need to be doing on their own as is. But I do think that there are those kind of surprising facts that people look back and they go, oh shit, I had no idea that that's where it started. You're like, yeah, yeah exactly. it did. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's not the only thing that has been, uh, you know, built to oppress African Americans. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, there's there's many many other there's many other examples of infrastructures. Um, you know, things that were just meant to keep us down and keep us low and keep us quiet. You know, and that's that's just something that's not going to be happening anymore. Um, our voice needs to be heard. We've been trying to have our voice heard for centuries now. And this is a beautiful situation that this is able to come out and our voices be heard. Um, beauty sometimes comes in um, the form of something ugly, unfortunately. But uh, uh, George Floyd, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, they're they're being you know they're being the martyrs for for our speech and for you know what needs to be done and what needs to be talked about. Yeah, and it's um, and it is and it is a hard conversation, but it's a conversation that I think needs to be hard because people need to be uncomfortable. They need to come to terms with a lot of things, especially people in my situation where I look like the poster mm-hmm. the poster boy of white privilege. So anything that can be done to fix it, I think, is necessary. And it's almost serendipitous that obviously George Floyd's funeral is today. Uh, Breonna Taylor's exactly. murders have still not been arrested at the time of this recording. Nope. Hopefully that will change by the time we finish this recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what more can people do in the meantime? Because th- the biggest thing that I'm seeing now, and I completely agree with it, is that you can't stop because people think that, oh, well, protests in the past worked. You're like, those protests lasted a year. A lot of these things take yeah. time. So what can people do if they're listening to this and they want to know what can I continue to help in the meantime now? What can they continue to do? Well, um, you know, I think what people can do is talk about these issues. You know, mm-hmm. these issues these issues have been so taboo throughout history for so long. It's, you know, it's something that you don't even want to touch. But this needs to be talked about. The reason why a lot of these um, facts that I've told you um, and things are hidden is because no one's talking about it. Everyone's scared to talk about it, speaking about it. Um um, you know, being comfortable with speaking out about it is a beautiful thing. It's something that needs to be done. You know, um, also, you know, as far as the Black Lives Matter movement, people need to do more than just posting a black square on their social media. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. You know, but it's almost just become this sort of trend. You know, just something to do to be like, oh yeah, you know, I support. <laughs> you know, uh, and that that is performative wokeness or surface level activism, you know? Yeah, um, completely. I was need to, completely guilty of that. So, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, with, with what you're doing as far as having these voices, um, you know, me and the other fellow uh, being on this show to speak about these issues, that that's a huge step right there. You know, um, not everyone needs to just go out and protest and, you know, do things like, in, you know, just protest and stuff like that. There's so many other ways, to bring these issues up and, you know, and talk to them and do your part, you know, um, letting, letting people know about what's going on, speaking about it, um, supporting black owned businesses, you know, putting money back into our communities and other, um, and other minority communities to help boost them up. You know, Mm -hmm. um, we need to, we need to push hard for real, for real change in our city and get personally involved in local budget battles as well. Um, you know, and also we, we just, we ask the police to do too much in this country. You know, police, policing is now being used in our schools to fight homelessness, untreated 
mental issues, substance abuse, and youth domestic violence. Uh, you know, we need we need other people to we need other people to deal with these issues that are more equipped to deal with these issues. You know, not just someone with a gun that's been trained not in all of those issues, or if they have very slightly, you know. Yeah. And that goes with um, that goes with defunding the police. They don't need all this money to be dealing with all of these issues. Separate that money into other communities, you know, YMCA's, um, mental health, um, you know, programs, substance abuse programs, domestic violence programs. They all need to be separated. The cops don't need to be dealing with all of this, you know. I, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. That's too much to ask of one person, especially if you're not adequately trained to do it. You you can't be a master mm-hmm. of none and still be, again, be put in that position. That's just not, it's not fair to ask of anybody. So I definitely no. agree that there needs to be definitely institutionalized reform and, and those other institutions need to be brought up and funded and properly taken care of, especially in the areas mm-hmm. that need it the most because of the problems that have already made them the areas that they are, which is the entire yeah, issue exactly. that needs to be fixed ahead of it. So obviously posting on social media is not enough and kind of putting your name out there. What do you think from a brand standpoint? There's been a couple of companies that have stepped up. I think Nike, Nike did a really great commercial. I thought they've pledged money. Uh, Bank of America coming out with a billion dollar pledge. No one saw that coming. If you told me that Bank of America was going to give a billion dollars, nobody saw (laughs) that coming. The only thing that made no. it less weird was that it's 2020 and you're like, yeah, fuck it. Why not? We'll trust <laughs> that's, him. That's mostly probably coming from my overdraft fees. But. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you and me both right now, man. I hear you. But so some brands are doing it. Some are not. Um, it's, a, it's a tough thing for them to think about. What about other places that are involved in local communities, albeit restaurants? As we start to kind of steer back towards the hospitality aspect of things, do restaurants yeah. have an obligation? to take a side, do you think? I, I personally think that everyone has an obligation to uh, speak about this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't, I think some companies are doing it just to do it, sort of like the Black Square situation. Yeah. Um, you know, some restaurants and companies are just saying something just to say something, you know, and um, just be like, oh yeah, well, you know, we're a part of this, like, don't be mad at us, don't boycott us. Mm-hmm. Um, for which ones are genuine and not, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. Um, but just to get the word out there, I think that's a good thing. I think that it needs to be out there and that needs to be, you know, shown to, to people around. Um, yeah, I, I think that restaurants need to show their stand and, um, especially, you know, for the history of cooking and, and food was, Predominantly, especially the uh, especially the cuisine within America was brought on by slaves. We were one of the first. We were the one of one of the first cooks. You know, <laughs> we yeah. were one of the first chefs. Absolutely, uh, fourth fourth chefs, but one of the first. You know, so, so before uh, we keep diving into the history of food and kind of that aspect of it, how did you get into mm-hmm. cooking? What's your background? Well, you know, I've been I've been cooking my whole life with my mother. Uh, my mom made me go into the kitchen with her <laughs> every time that she cooked. Yeah, she told me that um, you know a woman likes a man that can cook. <laughs> <laughs> so she, uh, yeah, she forced me to uh, be around in the kitchen with her and cook. She would always use her Julia Child voice when she uh, <laughs> taught me how to cook. <laughs> there was uh, multiple 
there's multiple pictures out there of me I'm sitting in the kitchen while my mom's cooking from uh, small to teenage years to adult years um, using the pots and pans as uh, drums yep. <laughs> when I was smaller and then eventually forming into me cooking. Uh, when my mother had passed away a few years ago, uh, I had said that I was going to dive in and completely dedicate my life to this um, in her in her honor. And uh, she was obsessed with cooking. Uh, when she passed away, I took about 100 books from her, uh, 100 cookbooks from her. Wow. Um, when I was cleaning out the house, uh, she was never a professional, but I would I would say she was a professional as far as, a, you know, a home cook. Yeah. Uh, she always she always decided to cook multiple things. Uh, I tried Thai cuisine, African cuisine, Japanese, everything with her. Uh, she cooked everything and she was she just showed that passion in the kitchen with not even it being her career. And with a lot of art being in my family, uh, my sister being an artist, uh, actually she is an an African history um, historian artist. Um, She was a curator at Rutgers, um, and she curated um, a couple other museums around, and she's been going back and forth to South Africa to uh, finish her PhD and to, um, you know, help curate museums and help spread the, um, the word out in Africa, um, especially South Africa about, um, you know, other tribal cuisines in Nigerian and um, working with other tribes to get their art over to museums that are in South Africa because, as we know, South, uh, South Africa is predominantly white now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I needed to find my, my art outlet. <laughs> I started off doing fiber optics um, I was actually a fiber optic engineer when wow. I was uh, around yeah when I was around uh, 20 I got into that um, with my friends at business and I had dove into it um, I had done electrical but it was it was a means to an end for me you know I was just working um, to make money but I was never ever into it I never had my heart fully into it um, but once I started cooking, at, um, I actually started at Rainforest Cafe <laughs> a long time ago, <laughs> about eight, nine years ago. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of microwaves and whatnot. <laughs> yep. But it was my foot into the door without having the money to go to culinary school, but still having to drive and knowing that I need to get into this somehow, some way, so that I can keep working my ass off and rise my way up. That's amazing, man. I love that. I mean, again, I, I first came into contact with your cuisine uh, through Journeyman with Zach. Um, obviously, for those listening, Zach Gearson, who ran Journeyman, uh, is oh, no yeah. longer with us. He has moved to Florida to launch his Rene Redzepi-inspired pop-up, Sila, See You Later, Alligator. He, oh, was, yeah. he was someone who, Sila, first of all, because you guys did the first dinner service of Sila, the only dinner service for Orange County at the Table for 10 charity event. I think that was the last major yeah. event before everything kind of shut down. Uh, it was, yeah, right before. <laughs> I call it the best restaurant that Orange County will never get. But it's such oh, a, yeah. it, it really, when he was telling me about the cuisine, he talked about the hyper-locality, but also the historical importance of it. And when it comes to historical importance in food, I think that's something that a lot of people are really just realizing the more that they're learning about kind of these different influences that came into, you know, Gullah cuisine and all these different things that really mm-hmm. originated from those kind of forced slave chefs like you talked about. Oh yeah. Watching all Definitely. of this unfold and being a chef and understanding what an important role uh chefs obviously had in building I would say the culture of you know what is now America. 
Mm-hmm. Does that kind of give you any difference going back into the kitchen now following COVID? Like with everything that's going on, is there any kind of renewed energy or interest or is it just kind of the same passion that your mother instilled in you? Well, um, you know, I've, I've had this passion, you know, especially since my mother instilled it into me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, working with Chef Zach, um, he, he boosted up my talent, my love for it, and and just the drive by about 300%, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, with going through this and, you know, um, these situations with, um, the murders of, uh, George Floyd and, um, really tapping into my, my black history, um, a lot more because as, as a African-American growing up in Orange County, you unfortunately tend to forget your history Yeah, and from, and for what they uh, teach you in school, um, if you were to ask any kids where our uh, where african-american culinary history um uh, leads back to or what's our biggest um con- contribution they would probably say uh peanut butter by george washington carver mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh with when there's so much when there's so much more to it so uh yeah this is this has definitely made me want to dive more as far as an activist for this and accentuate african-american cuisine which is zero to none in California other than, you know, if you go to LA, you can, yeah. you can find some spots, but in Orange County, we're talking about Orange County. Um, don't see that at all. Um, so my drive to bring that type of cuisine out and to have people experience it, um, especially with having the segue to do it with people being a lot more open to eat different types of food and um, experiment is it's huge now. So yeah, I think my drive got up. 10 times more than it already was after Chef Zach and my mother. Um, it, the news broke yesterday and it really moved quickly. Obviously some people had been sitting on this news for a while, but all the final dominoes kind of fell out. Obviously um, Adam Rappaport has stepped down as the EIC over at Bon Appetit uh, mm-hmm. after the revelation that he had done brownface. I think it was like 16 years ago or something he said for a Halloween thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. With food media, specifically, not just the media as we kind of talked about earlier, but what can food media do better to help cover, I guess, the, and not just when it comes to obviously African-American history, but all of the mm-hmm. different people of color and their history and their representation yeah. in food media. We need to focus on different cuisines. Uh, there's a, there's a focus in my opinion, really solely on French cuisine, you know, um, Mm-hmm. Thank, thankfully, I feel in Orange County, uh, Latinos have gotten their chance to show what they can do, you know, with Taco Maria um, and other restaurants like that. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, you know, so I think I think that that's, that's huge, but it, it needs to be a discussion. It needs to be put more out there. You need to highlight more Latinos. We need to highlight more Asian, uh, Asian Americans, uh, more Asian cuisine. We need to highlight a cuisine that you know people that haven't even really touched before you know tongan and all and all that type of cuisine you know that it just needs to be highlighted more it needs to be shown um i see i feel like the media focuses and circulates around the same same chefs over and over and over again yeah but i'll tell you i'll tell you what after after all of this goes out and you know, everything that's going on right now, I feel like there's going to be a huge drive and push for these other, these other, um, these other people and these other races to, 
broadcast themselves and show what they're doing, you know? And I'll tell you that this uh, cuisine, which is going to be amazing, <laughs> the cuisine that um, is going to be put out there and shown and talked about, it's, it's going to be huge. It's going to be it's going to be great. Um, we, we can step away from the French and the French-based cuisine for a while now, which you don't see any other races in those kitchens. And also that I think that's a huge reason why um, African-Americans and, um, you know, people in the Asian community and Latinos aren't really seen as much in these fine dining restaurants because they're geared towards French and, um, you know, and um, white cuisine, if you will. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Taco Maria. Um, I think Taco Maria might be one of the most important restaurants in Orange County simply because it breaks mm-hmm. the stereotype of what those flavors can be and kind of what Mexican cuisine should be from the price standpoint to the, the flavors and, and the skill that goes into it. Um, yes. And again, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to get you on the show before all this started, mm-hmm. this was not the catalyst that I wanted to do. Same thing with Justin Wolfork, who was our last guest, uh, bartender from Long Beach. Yeah. And I want to get different people from Taco Maria to try and shine a light on these stories. Is there any fear with food media going forward? And I don't worry about Bon Appetit. They have fantastic people over there. I worry more the smaller, the local. I think Orange County has a pretty good head on its shoulders if we're speaking locally. But is there any fear with food media that there may be a sudden disingenuine chase to try and find like where are the black chefs, where are the Korean chefs? Mm. Where, because people, it'll be kind yeah. of the new, I'm not a racist card. Is there any fear about exactly. that? Exactly. There, there's definitely a uh, fear about that. <laughs> you know, mm. um, it goes back to me saying, I don't know if people are doing it to be genuine or doing it just to, just to, uh, push themselves out there, you know, and be like, Oh yeah, I support you guys. Like, yeah. you know, don't, don't not support me. Um, the, yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's an interesting question. It's hard. Uh, yeah, there's definitely going to be people that are disingenuous about it. Um, there, there is that fear, uh, as far as the media around here. Um, I think that it will be covered more. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think something that the media can do is um, seek out for, you know, good stories on these people, um, you know, showing showing exactly what these people can showcase and do in the kitchen, you know, African-Americans, Asians and whatnot, as opposed to just um, highlighting them to highlight of uh, the history of African-American cuisine and um, Asian cuisine and just let people know that a lot of American cuisine, which is a melting pot is deep rooted from all of these other, all of these other um, cultures that have brought it to be American cuisine. American cuisine is made from all of these other cultures and very small on the French, on the French side. So I think we need to highlight that. So maybe educating, even if they're coming from, you know, a disingenuous space, maybe just educating people and letting them know more so they can decide for themselves and learn for themselves. So if you're going to put it out there, don't half-ass do it. At least put the history and where it, um, where it brings everyone together so that people can be educated and not just be like, Oh yeah, we're going to highlight this guy today, this African-American chef, this Asian guy, and, you know, and, and show a small little part about them just to have them in your magazine, just to, yeah. Be show that you know that you're um, supporting 
yeah, but actually show the history. And there's a very there's a very deep rooted history, especially especially in African American cuisine. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Benchmark is obviously a great restaurant. Has the what's the conversation been like around kind of that? Like now that you're kind of getting back to service, is it more just kind of a push to? just try and figure out, I hate the term new normal. I just don't know a new, a new one. I didn't have have coffee yet this morning. I'll be honest. I don't know what new normal is. Whatever it is, it's going to be insane. Um, I think I've had too much coffee, so I'm definitely uh, (laughs) higher than normal now. (laughs) You're elevated. It's elevated. (laughs) Elevated. There we go. There we go. That's a good way. What have the conversations been like at the restaurant kind of moving back into this? Because obviously you do have to think about all of the new regulations. Um, I've dined out at a couple restaurants since, um, some of them were just kind of family and friends, test openings, things like that. Is this going back to business as usual, or is this just kind of a whole new era that everybody's stepping into? And that's with regards to both coronavirus and everything that's happened since. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's been, hmm, I think everything feels like it's coming back to normal a little too fast mm-hmm. you know in my opinion um the the conversation you know we went over the cdc um guidelines and what we need to do in the kitchen you know we're wearing our masks we're uh, changing our gloves you know which uh which uh, a lot of chefs already do all the time you know cleanliness that's already on the mark um it's interesting seeing uh, dishwasher is in full like battle gear <laughs> with a face mask, uh, full face mask, you know, and all that stuff. Um, but as far as when you look outside, it looks the same to me. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. The fact that multiple people aren't wearing their masks mm-hmm. when they come to eat. Uh, it just, it really seems like people are like, Oh yeah, COVID's over. Like, okay, we're good. You know? Yeah. Um, and also I think that really reaches back to a lot of people wanting to just get back to normal. They don't care how, they don't care what, what happens. They just want to go outside and eat and not see people in face masks because that incites some sort of anxiety, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, as, uh, I was in Long Beach the other day and there was people in the bars and it was packed. Uh, it's probably 50% capacity, you know, but 50% in a small Long Beach bar is still pretty packed. Yeah, that's still, uh, that's still a fair amount of people. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just walking by and seeing people without their masks and everyone next to each other, it it in my opinion seems like everything's going back to normal now. I hope that doesn't have some sort of um, you know resurgence of COVID or anything like that. But I do, I just don't think people are scared anymore. And if they're not scared, then they're just wanting to they're just wanting to go back to normal and feel like life is just how it was before. So if we but are starting to, oh no, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. no, 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 go ahead. I didn't <laughs> want to cut you off. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm just saying uh, this same normal uh, is what uh, you know, uh, or this unnormal, excuse me, is what has brought us to think about these current issues like that. You know, so I don't, I don't know if I personally really want to go back to normal so fast because a lot of things that are coming to light that have been pushed under the rug, shoved under the rug. Um, people are forced to listen to and see now, and I think that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. I think uh, I think we should be back to unnormal for a little while longer. <laughs> so I'm I'm really glad that you kind of phrased it that way because that was you, you basically led right into my follow up question is mm-hmm. does that desire to want to go back to normal? Because agreed, I, I've been in places in Laguna, Newport, um, 
Irvine, Santa Ana, and the feelings are all different. The way that certain restaurants are running it is entirely different, but there is that kind of universal sense of trepidation from people where they're like, Oh my God, I can't wait. Oh my God. It's like when you're next, exactly. when you're next in line for the roller coaster and those people ahead of you get their <laughs> car and you're like, Oh my God, we're next. Oh my God, we're next. Yeah, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> is there any fear that that desire is going to remove some, because I, I'm not worried about African-American community. I'm not worried about mm-hmm. Latino community. I'm worried about mm-hmm. the, passively active white community. Is there any fear that yeah. there's going to be distraction by kind of going back to normal post COVID that is going to pull oh, yeah. the focus from fixing this? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That's definitely a fear. Uh, that's the reason why a lot of these things have been pushed to the side. You know, um, you'll have that next story come out, whether it be about sports, um, new shows coming out, award ceremonies, all that kind of stuff. They're distractions to what the real issues are. Um, America seems to love their distractions to take away from the real issues that are going on. And so that's definitely a fear of going back to normal. And especially a lot of the um, passive white community that you said, wanting to just not even worry about this and go back to normal and not even think about this. You know, the first, the first thing that comes up, they're going to want to jump onto so I, I, you know, I don't know how we can keep this going other than having our voices be heard, marching, the marching's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. The protesting's not going to stop. You know, none of that, none of that's going to stop. And our voices will be heard and it will be rung, uh, you know, aloud and through everyone. But yeah, there, there is that fear that it will be tucked away again, especially in um, some of those, um, you know, more passive white communities. Definitely a fear. Well, I can at least say that the one, at least two of the restaurants that I went to, the conversations that you could hear from other tables were only about this as well. So I know that the conversations Mm -hmm. are still happening, which is good. That's good. For those that do Mm -hmm. want to stay involved and maybe they're not sure, um, like my wife is immunocompromised. So I'm trying, like, I haven't been able to do protests initially, things like that, because I have to care about her safety because we are still technically in a pandemic. What would you mm-hmm. say to people that want to stay involved and maybe they're unsure how? From your perspective, what can they do? There's a there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, I would say, um, like I said before, you know, supporting um, black-owned businesses, putting money back into those communities, um, just donating, donating to the George Floyd Fund, or donating to the Breonna Taylor Fund, um, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, you know, I can go on with all of the African Americans that have been killed through, uh, due to police brutality, but then our show would uh, probably never end. <laughs> it's true. So, I'd um, be syndicated real quick. Be like, well, that was eighteen exactly. hours. Jesus. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so supporting um, and bringing money to these funds. Um, you know, um, educating yourself. Educating yourself on um, dismantling the legal system and dismantling. Um, the police and also knowing why we're saying that and it's not something to destroy people's jobs and trying to be anarchist and whatnot, you know, um, we just don't need the police arresting the homeless. We don't need them. We don't want them in the cities, you know, to invest in the, we want them in our cities to invest in affordable living. You know, we, we don't want police officers doing these jobs that they don't need to do. Um, so yeah, educating yourself, supporting these, um, supporting these funds and really reading and looking into what this is about and not seeing it from an outside view as a whole, 
for something for something bad that a bunch of people are just uh, bored and going out and protesting. But actually going through and and educating yourself. Educating yourself is probably one of the biggest things. Um, and not educating yourself through Facebook and what other people are saying in Facebook and Instagram and all of that social media, but actually, you know, opening up a book, actually reading some of these articles. Um, there's a great article in New York Times uh, that just came out about um, um, the top 16 African-American chefs um, that are out right now, which, uh, you know, 16 isn't a lot, but <laughs> we'll take what we can get, you know. Oh, um, yeah, I did read that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's some really real. Yeah, no, you're right. 16 is a way too low of a number. But if exactly. any, if you do read that article and any of those chefs are in your area, go. Because there are some killer chefs on that list. Most definitely. Yeah. You know, you have Preston Clark, who is the first African-American ever to win a James Beard Award. Mm -hmm. And he's only he's only 38, which shows you our, how our recognition has just started to come along when we've been in kitchens for 400 years now. Yeah. You know, and then we and you have Kwame. Um, who is the uh, James Beard rising star, you know? Um, so I think that's beautiful that these guys are coming up and, you know, you know, being a strength in this, uh, in this movement. But, you know, also there's only 17%. Um, and this is, uh, this is connected to the um, Bureau of Labor. There's only 17% of African-Americans in America that are head chefs or, or lead cooks at that. That's so, an insane number. Yeah. So there definitely needs to be a change in that. Yeah. How I think there could be a change in that is by, you know, number one, um, African-Americans, uh, especially young African-Americans being introduced to different cuisine, but also um, having the opportunity to go to culinary school and having the opportunity to learn about other cuisines and, you know, being a part of the, the knowledge that is, you know, brought about. And it, it's hard, especially, you know, coming from low income areas and, and not knowing exactly where you can go with cuisine other than, you know, possibly just being a cook um, at, you know, Red Lobster or something like that, yeah. that there's, there's more out there for you and pushing that more out there and, you know, reaching for more African-Americans in the area and around you to be cooking and to be in the kitchen. It's, I mean, again, there's so much that's wrong, but it's, it's nice to think that we can start to do something that's right. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I, I think for a lot of people, those answers aren't really clear yet. Um, I think for a lot of the people, those answers aren't clear yet. And I hope that we can, shine yeah. a light on them and figure out what they are as we do start to move forward because it's it's been a but we're definitely working on it oh yeah absolutely i, I don't think that mm -hmm. the world has any doubt about that and i think if anybody does they're just they're blind there, there's no way you can't yeah. see what's happening um and it's long long overdue mm -hmm. anthony exactly. if people want to find you online if they want to reach out to you where can they do that uh you can find me on instagram uh my instagram tag is at Chocks, B-H-O-X underscore kitchen. Um, that's really the uh, best place you can find me uh, online to uh, kind of see the cuisine that I'm working on. Uh, also, I plan on doing an ode to um, this podcast and my current, um, you know, um, push into the the um, African-American community and um, 
and protesting. Um, I'm going to be doing a couple dishes tonight that, uh, you know, show an ode to that. So I'll be posting that on there. Uh, also on Saturday, um, Saturday, June, what, what's that going to be? Let's see. June 13th, which is Juneteenth, uh, go ahead and also look up what Juneteenth means uh, to the African-American community. But on uh, June 13th, I will be cooking um, for one of the protests that is in uh, Santa, uh, not Santa, excuse me, in Fullerton at uh, Fullerton-Anaheim border at La Palma Park. Um, I have connected with uh, Justice, which is uh, one of the um, protest leaders. And, um, you know, I'm going to be cooking for um, most of the protesters, uh, but just mostly the uh, EMTs, uh, you know, the medical staff, the protesters, uh, the protest leaders and their family. Um, so you can catch me there. Um, and I just uh, I just hope everyone's able to come out and show their support there and, um, you know, see what this is really about. It's not what you see on media. It's not a bunch of crazy people fighting, battling. It's actually a beautiful experience to, to get equality, you know, not only for African-Americans, but for everyone. Yeah. Every minority. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. You're going to be out there cooking. And yeah, I was going to add it in the show notes. Do everybody take some time and do some education on Juneteenth and understand kind of what the weekend ahead is going to hold and everything. It's, um, dude, that's awesome to hear that everything's been peaceful and, and things are kind of moving forward. And I cannot wait to find some free time to get up to benchmark soon and, uh, and catch up properly in person. So. Oh yeah. Definitely hope to see you soon there, my man. Dude, any other, any other things you want to shout out or, shout to people or anything uh, like that yeah i just uh you know i just want to say um, rest in peace to the the lives that were lost uh due to police brutality um you know we got george floyd brianna taylor ahmaud aubrey um you know i just want to give a shout out to uh my mom rest in peace um thank you for you know showing me the, the light in cooking uh chef zach as well uh thank you so much for your mentorship um, just in my family and my friends who have been there for me, um, you know, no matter what, and that have, uh, that have always just, you know, been a part of my life. And I just really, I just really, really hope that people go out and do their research. Um, I, you know, I try to do as much justice as I can for African Americans and the African Americans, especially in Orange County and, um, the African American chefs and cooks that are unheard. Um, your voice, your voice is heard and just keep shining and go out there and make something beautiful about it. And don't let um, anyone hold you down. Amen to that brother. No doubt your mom is proud as hell looking down on you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, brother. Thank you for the time. Be well. And I will, uh, I will see you soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and you too, my man. Appreciate it. Be well. See you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Chef for taking the time. Uh, as always, you can find him on Instagram if you want over at Chox Kitchen, C-H-O-X underscore kitchen. I don't know why there was so much emphasis on the O, but I don't hate it. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Again, <laughs> I know that these podcasts are supposed to be kind of escapism in some way. You're not turning to a food podcast, even a local one like this, you know, punky little, pokey little show to be kind of berated over the head with heavy stuff. But the fact is, is that these conversations need to happen in an industry where there's a lot of changes that have already been forced because of COVID-19 that were long overdue for a lot of reasons. Uh, Some of them you've heard on these episodes, some of them have yet to kind of rear their heads, but we're going to continue to be talking about all of them. There's a lot of changes that need to come in society as a whole uh, for the betterment of everyone. And this is the time to do it. So 
If you're listening to this right now, I'm sorry if this is a heavy topic, but it's a topic that needs to be heard. And if you're listening to this in the future and you're just discovering the show, hi, welcome. I hope you survived 2020. We don't know if we're going to yet, but if we did, good on us. Anyway, thank you so much to Chef again for the time. Um, I'm so grateful. There's going to be some more episodes coming up pretty soon. Um, A couple of them were recorded before the protests really got going, um, but out of solidarity for the Black Lives Matter movement and basically the voices in the industry that needed to be heard, they were delayed. Um, I don't know yet if I'm going to re-record them. One of them for sure is going to go up. The other one, I don't know yet, but I hope you will look forward to them. And again, if we got anything wrong or if there's anything that I said wrong and I need to be corrected on, I am completely open to being told where I made a mistake. As always, you can go to thebestseats.com forward slash you're wrong and send an email and I will do my best to correct it either in a AMA podcast um, at the end of the month or in the intro to whatever show is up next. But regardless, stay strong, stay healthy, eat well, live often. I will see you all very soon. Thank you again. And thank you to Anthony for the time. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Talia Samuels, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support.